Kim and I recently had a call, speaking of, of missions, uh, we recently had a, a call with a friend who is a missionary in Asia doing college campus ministry. Uh, she was looking for support, people to join her support team. And if you're like us, it's not uncommon to receive such support requests from missionaries. The more that we all know of people doing good gospel work and uh, in awesome places around the world, the more that we will have those uh, requests to join people's uh, ministry partner teams. And so it's always a joy to hear about those things and hear what people are doing. Uh, also, if you're like us, unfortunately, you can only do so much. <laughs> Find yourself saying no more than you say yes as those letters come in. I wish we had the resources to, to say yes to, to all of them. But this was one of the ones to which we happily said yes. And as we got on the phone with this sister just a, a couple of weeks ago, one of the stated reasons that we gave to her for why we were wanting to join her ministry support team was that she had endured. That was it. We love the ministry. lots of things about what she was doing and where she was doing, all those things that we thought were great. But we said, listen, the reason we're, we're wanting to jump on your team is that you have been steadfast. We knew this uh, young woman whenever we were uh, serving in Asia, and we saw her through ordeal after ordeal endure very hard things. And through all of this, she hasn't lost her heart for ministry. She hasn't lost her enthusiasm uh, in ministry. She's been steadfast. Her first year in ministry in Asia, her team leader disqualified himself from ministry. Uh, leading to quite a bit of turmoil in our church as well as kind of a crumbling of the campus ministry that she was a part of there in Asia. Year number two, she had new team leaders that came in who were morally more qualified but who downplayed the role of the local church and uh, was something of a discouragement uh, in that regard, but she remained steadfast as a church member. The third year that she was there, one of her teammates started to believe a false gospel, didn't come and uh, meet with me as, as one of the pastors about it until he had been uh, in that for about six or eight months. He ended up leaving the ministry and leaving the country. Year number four, one of her best friends and teammates turned from a biblical sexual ethic and then divorced her husband and then pursued a same-sex relationship and now is saying she's no longer a Christian. One by one, everyone who started with her was getting picked off. Everyone was gone. And then COVID hit, and she was made to leave the country and was bounced by her organization, various places around the world. And here she was, back at it, going back to Asia, looking for people to join her ministry partner team. We couldn't say yes fast enough. A number of reasons, but the big one was that she had endured when no one else had. She had refused to lose heart. And we said, that's the type of ministry we want to support. Friends, ministers of the gospel need such resolve. Right? Those in Christian ministry need to endure and to not lose heart. But... but when I say that, don't, don't hear me talking about just those in kind of formal occupational ministry. 
those who are pastors and those who are missionaries, those who work for campus outreach. I'm not just talking about those people. I'm talking about all of us who have been saved by God and called, if we believe in Jesus and we have been reconciled to God through Christ, we have then been given a ministry of reconciliation. We are called into the ministry, as it were, each and every one of us to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus and to present him to others. And so in a sense, this is true for all of us, for each and every one of us who claims Christ. We are called into a lifestyle of proclaiming and pointing people to Jesus. How do you not lose heart in doing that? How do you endure when you see people leaving the faith, when you, see, uh, when you receive pressure and pushback and, and uh, ostracization and, and maybe your, your industry or where you work, cultural pushback, how do we endure, how do we not become discouraged, how do we not lose our zeal and our enthusiasm? Well, in our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is going to talk about just that thing. He's going to talk about how he was able to keep going in gospel ministry. He's going to talk about how he was able to not lose heart. He's going to talk about what enables him to avoid discouragement and rather to press on in life and ministry. Join me if you would in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going through a series here in the book of 2 Corinthians, just taking each new section as it comes and seeing what God would have for us in it. And this morning we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and we will look at the first six verses together. What I hope we see by the end of our time together this morning is that understanding the nature of our gospel ministry helps us to endure in gospel ministry. So understanding the nature of gospel ministry helps us to endure in gospel ministry. Specifically, I think Paul is going to talk about four things that will help us endure. He's going to talk about gospel calling and gospel convictions, and then he's going to talk about gospel rejection and gospel reception. All right, so those four things, gospel calling and gospel convictions, and then gospel rejection and gospel reception. Meditating on these four things, understanding those four things is the nature of gospel. There's a lot of other things we can say about gospel ministry, but those four things are part of the nature of gospel ministry. And understanding those four things helps us to endure in our own gospel ministry. Look at the text. I will read it. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. First thing that we see here is our gospel calling. 
I have in mind specifically that first verse that we read together. The passage opens in verse 1 with him saying, therefore, we have this ministry. Now, a quick glance back into chapter 3 will clue you into what he's talking about when he says we have this ministry. If you look back at verses 7 through 9 of chapter 3, he says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You see there, Paul in chapter 4 is talking about this, this ministry, this, this uh, Christian ministry that he's already talked about in chapter 3. It's the ministry of the new covenant. Not the ministry of the old, old covenant, steeped as it was in the letter of the law and the fleeting nature of the glory that it could provide. But the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of proclaiming Jesus, the Messiah, the true king who came to save and redeem and give us new life by his own life and death and resurrection. That's the ministry that he's been discussing. Not this ministry that is pales in comparison, but this glorious new covenant ministry where God is going to write uh, on our hearts the, 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 tr uh, the truthfulness of the gospel and give us the righteousness of Christ. That's what the ministry that Paul is taken up with. And he says, therefore, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. So Paul, in speaking of that ministry, you may have noticed that if you've been with us these last number of weeks or have recently read the book of 2 Corinthians, here in this, this chapter, it's a little bit difficult because it, it, he said all of this already. <laughs> in a sense, as you read this paragraph, he's, he's pulling on threads that he's already pulled on in the book already. And he's tying them together here in this new paragraph tying together several threads that he's already discussed. And so he's going to tie, he's going to pull on that thread of not messing with God's word, which he's already talked about in the book. We don't, we don't, we don't tweak God's word. We don't do goofy stuff with it. He's going to pull on that thread again in a moment. He's going to pull on the thread of Satan's desire to deceive us. Right? He's already talked about that in the book already, his, his craftiness and his deceit in chapter 2, verse 11. He's going to pull in the thread about the gospel being veiled, which he already talked about with this meditation on Moses and the Old Covenant. Right? So he's taking all these threads that he's already talked about, and he's pulling on all of them and tying them up. But this very first thread that he pulls on, that he grabs, is about boldness, which again is something he's already talked about as well. And he's going to talk about boldness, where uh, there he says that we do not lose heart because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. The Greek word there for lose heart has the idea of, of being discouraged or of losing motivation or of losing enthusiasm. And actually that, that, that phrase, we do not lose heart, it actually uh, serves as somewhat of a bookends on this chapter. You can look at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, look at chapter 4, verse 16. You'll see it again. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, and so on. So this whole chapter of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is bookended by this idea of not losing heart, of enduring, of pressing on, of not waning in your zeal or your enthusiasm for the ministry to which God has called you. This is his focus in chapter 4. With all of the pressure that comes 
both from inside and outside the church for Paul. He, he's got it. He's got the folks in the church in Corinth kind of pushing back against him and calling things into question. He's got pressures coming from outside with persecution and things that he's dealing with in the culture around him. So with, with all of that that's going on in, in Paul's life and in his ministry, both outside the church and inside the church, all the criticism and cynicism and questioning of his motives and questioning of his apostolic authority and questioning of his methods and questioning of his qualifications, all the persecutions and all the sleepless nights. Through all of that, Paul wants at the outset here, wants the Corinthians to know why he remains steadfast. He wants them to know why he endures. He wants them to know why he doesn't lose heart. What's the reason? The answer there in verse 1 is that he's be mercied. That's how the Puritans put it. They talk about being be mercied. We translate this here in our English text as having this ministry by the mercy of God. But the word for mercy there is actually a verb in the Greek. It's a passive verb that, that you have been mercied. That you've, Paul says, I've, I'm, I'm be mercied. <laughs> I don't lose heart. I don't wane in my zeal and my enthusiasm because God has mercied me. That's why I don't lose heart. That's why I endure in ministry. It's something that's been done to him. It's not something that he's figured out. It's not some seminary class he took. It's not some way he kind of whips himself up into a kind of an emotional frenzy or, or counsels his own emotions. It, this is because God has mercied him. God has shown him mercy, and he says, that's, that's why I endure. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What does that have to do with not losing heart? What does what mercy, what does God mercying you have to do with endurance? Not has everything to do with it. Paul, when Paul thinks of who he is and where he is and what he's been called to, he thinks of mercy. That, that, that he paints his life with that brush. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Or you might think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. He says, now concerning the betrothed, as he's giving uh, counsel and teaching on marriage here. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He says, there's anything good I have to do in ministry, anything I have to offer you, that's because God's mercy to me. He's given me mercy. 1 Timothy 1, verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And we could go on. But you just see Paul, when he thinks of his life, and he thinks of who he is, and he thinks of his ministry, and he thinks of all those things, he says, what is the thing that, that kind of prevails in his view of that? He says, I have been mercied by God. And this has everything to do with endurance. Being mercied by God, we realize God has been so kind to us. It's nothing that we deserve. Life in Christ, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, gone from death to life, from enemies to friends, that's nothing that any of us deserve. 
And so Paul says, knowing that, that I don't deserve any of that, God has been so kind to me, far be it from me to not give every effort to battle back those doubts, to not give every effort to cling to God's word, to not give every effort to never walk away from Jesus. Far be it from me to ever do anything else but stay right here where I am, submitting to God's word and clinging to Jesus Christ. God's been so kind to me. I will give all energy towards steadfastness and endurance. What if the entire culture is telling you you're crazy? I don't care. I'm staying right here. It has everything to do with endurance. Because if he's mercied you also, one, it's just, I, I don't deserve this. How far be it for me to walk away from it. But also he's mercied you for a purpose. He's mercied all of us for a purpose. You never see anywhere in Scripture where God is just saving people just to give them a ticket into heaven. We are saved for a reason. We are blessed to bless others. We are redeemed to redeem. That's why God has done that. And so Paul says, I'm going to persevere in mercy because, or in, in ministry. I'm going to endure. I'm not going to lose heart because I've been mercied. He's saved me for this. He saved me to this. This is, what else can I do? He didn't just save me to give me a ticket into heaven. He saved me to open my mouth and proclaim his excellencies to others. To show others the way to find mercy. Mercy has everything to do with endurance as well. Because we know if he has mercied you at the beginning, he will continue to mercy you for the rest of your life. He will keep you. He will not leave you. He doesn't just save you and be like, all right, I saved you. I did that work. You figure it out on your own for the rest of your life. I've drawn you near in the gospel, now good luck. That's not what our Savior does. He says, I've mercied you, I've shown you mercy, and you know what? I'm never going to stop. I'm always going to be right here saying more mercy, more mercy, more mercy. So Paul, when he thinks of his ministry and he says, listen guys, I don't lose heart. I have all kinds of pressure. I have all kinds of stuff coming at me. You guys are even against me at times. I'm writing letters. I'm visiting. It's, it's keeping me awake at night. I've got pressure from all these people trying to get. All this stuff's going on in my life. I'm not going anywhere. I don't lose heart. Why? Because God's given me mercy. I can do nothing else. I need do nothing else. Our endurance is ministry in ministry. Right? Understanding the nature of our gospel ministry helps us to endure in gospel ministry. And one of the first things we need to understand is that we have been, we have gospel, uh, a gospel calling because God has shown us mercy. There's a second thing here in the next verse though, gospel convictions. Gospel convictions, we endure not because, only because we have gospel calling and been mercied by God, but gospel convictions as well. Look at verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So here, I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying uh, to them, showing them why he endures in ministry. He says, not only do we, do we endure in ministry because of this calling that we have. Not only do, do we endure and, and not lose heart, but we also don't resort to doing goofy things with God's word. Right, that can be a temptation. That can be a temptation in ministry. One is just to quit. One is just to lose heart. That's verse one. Right, you got all this pressure, and, and we're, we're, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bail. The other thing is just to start say, well, maybe God's word doesn't mean what it says. Maybe I'll just tweak it to make it more palatable. You're, you're giving me pushback because of this thing. Well, let me just change it a little bit so you'll stop being so mad at me. 
Right? I think that's what he's doing when he transitions from verse 1 into verse 2. Right? Both of those things can be temptations in the midst of pressures of life and ministry. Right? On one hand, discouragement is a temptation. And on the other hand, disgraceful ministry practices are a temptation. And so what he does here is that now he stacks together a number of phrases to communicate what he intentionally avoids. Right? So he says there, look in your text, says he has renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Uh, the Greek there for disgraceful is, is interesting. It's literally the hidden things of shame. <laughs> he says we, we renounce the hidden things of shame or, or things that people hide because they are shameful. A lot of false teachers out there know better. I don't know if you know that or not. It's, it's true. A lot of people who are out there making money off of false gospels that they are preaching, they know better. They know it's not true. They do it anyway because they're getting paid. They do underhanded, disgraceful things, right? It's hidden things of shame. They know better and they do it anyway, which is why they're underhanded. Look in your text. The other thing he says there is that he refuses not just to, uh, he, he renounces disgraceful, underhanded ways, but he also refuses to practice cunning, right? So, so any sort of decepti deceptiveness or craftiness, that he's saying one thing when he really means another. God's word is saying one thing, but he's being kind of cutesy with teaching it and coming from a different angle and being crafty and cunning and deceptive with God's word, which happened all the time with teachers and, and public speakers and philosophers in this day. Look at your text again. He doesn't tamper with God's word. He said, it doesn't mess with God's word. I don't, I don't, I don't try to tweak it or, or, or mess with it or, or, or try to have it say something it doesn't say. All, all of these phrases, right, he's stacking these up. They're, they're somewhat synonymous. There's little flavors of difference that we can see there. But they're somewhat synonymous. And they're all point, they all point to doing something with God's word to make it more palatable for people. Right? He says it's disgraceful. It's sneaky. But people tamper with God's word in order to tell people what they want to hear. Or in order to be liked by people, in order to maintain social capital, in order to fit in better with those who might otherwise ostracize them or cancel them or persecute them. And Paul says we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. And we don't mess with God's word. Rather, rather, look at the text again, this is what, this is what we do. That's what we don't do. This is what we do. By an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Right? So instead of tweaking God's word and messing with God's word, what do we do? Open statement of the truth. Here's an open statement of the truth. Friends, if, I think it's helpful just to point this out every now and then, not as a pat on the back, but just as a, like, let's just, let's just take you behind the curtain and tell you why we do what we do here. The reason we preach the way we do is because of this. Right, this is why we preach the way we do. What we do here is what we call consecutive expositional preaching. All right, consecutive expositional preaching through books of the Bible, where we don't just go and pick a bunch of topics that we think you might want to hear, and then we craft those messages in a way that you might find the most enjoyable. Right, that's, that's not what we do here. No, we take books of the Bible because we want God to set the preaching calendar for us, because they're up to me. Gosh. That would be sad. We'd be talking about all kinds of weird things. That talking about West Virginia football and I don't know. We'd be talking about all kinds. We, we don't want us to set the, the preaching. I want God to set the preaching calendar. And, and we're going to listen to what he has to say for us. And then we just take the text. We often have texts that come up and, and you know, uh, it's just, it's the next text up. 
So we're going to deal with it. Might have something hard in there. Great. It's God's word. Let's talk about it. You know, my last sermon, I pastored in China for six years. You know, my last sermon, my farewell sermon after pastoring in six years in China, it was Paul's passage on head coverings. Like, what a passage to go out on, right? But that was, it was on the calendar and it was the next text up. And so, and that's why I opened up. It was, it was, everybody knew it was my last sermon and I got up and I was like, listen, I want this sermon to be memorable. Right? Not just because I'm talking about head, but, but because I want you guys to walk away remembering. I, it, I want you to see this. We're just doing the next, next thing in the Bible. That's what we're going to do. Again, there's, there's a place and time for topical messages and farewell messages and all, all those kinds of things. I'm not, not trying to hate on that too much. But I'm just saying this is what we do. We want to do consecutive expositional preaching here where we go through books of the Bible, let God tell us what he wants us to study next. Because all of it is his word and all of it is good for us. That's what we do, we, we just, and then we aim, as in the sermon itself, we aim to expose, expositional, exposit, to expose, to pull back the cover on and just show you the Bible. And so ideally, the, the, the main point of what uh, we preach up here, whether it's me or Garrett or somebody else preaching, should you should be able to look and be like, yeah, that's kind of what that says. <laughs> the, the main point of what we're preaching is the main point of what we see in the text, though crafted for our congregation to consider. Friends, I, I hope you take delight in what Paul is saying here. Whether, whether you're a member of Delray Baptist Church or, or maybe you're visiting with us or maybe you don't call yourself a Christian at all. But I hope you appreciate and take delight in what Paul is doing here. Because there, there's something here I know you're thankful for. And you know you're thankful for it. And then there's something else here. I don't, I don't know if you know how good it is, but I, I bet you'd be grateful for it if you consider it. So, so the first one of those, the thing that I know you're grateful for is an approach to ministry that isn't doing anything sneaky or shameful or underhanded, right? None of us want to show up to a church and, and expect some sort of ulterior motives from those who are in leadership, right? They just want my money, right? They just want me here so that they can report to somebody that the church has grown by X number of people. That's why they want me here. They just want me here because they want more baptisms because of some sort of congregational reporting system for baptisms somewhere. Like, you don't want that. I don't want that. Oh, that's kind of gross. Right? It's not what we want. So, so you know that, right? You, you know you don't want people tampering with God's word. You don't want people having sneaky ulterior motives to where you're, you're really here. And we're saying we're here to feed you God's word and to shepherd you and to help you uh, help each other along to heaven. But in the back of your mind, you're like, nah, that's not really what you're up to. Right, we don't want that. Right? An open proclamation of the truth. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for, and that's what we want to do. I, th I think you all agree with that. The other thing, though, the, the thing that I don't know that, that has risen to the level of consciousness for everybody, that, that uh, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but you also don't want us to tamper with God's word, because if this is truly the word of God, and it is, and we don't mean that just kind of, you know, euphemistically or metaphorically, these are God's words. <laughs> this is, the, these, if you want to hear God speak, man, I wish I could speak from God, hear from God, read this. Right? You want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud. Like that, that's how this is, God has spoken here. Right? And, and so th these are God's words, and so you don't want us to mess with that. If there really is a God, and there is, and if he really has spoken, and he has, you want that pure and unadulterated. You want the pure thing served up to you. 
right? You, you don't want us ultimately to hold back from what it says because we're afraid how you, you might like us or not. We're afraid if it might challenge some of your assumptions or not. Or we're afraid that, man, you're so committed to some other way of thought or, or moral philosophy that if we really give you this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to poke on your idols and challenge you in all these ways. So we better not do that. You don't want that. Not if this is God's word. You want to, no more than you would want the doctor to, to, to mess with your diagnosis just because he's like, well, I don't know if they're going to want to hear it or not. You don't want that. You say, tell me. Good news, if it's bad news, tell me what it is. Tell me the truth. You don't want the airplane pilot saying, well, the, the runway is actually over here instead of over there when it's not. That's not imposing anything on anybody. It's this pure proclamation of what is true. It's an open statement of the truth. You don't want that. No. You want a place where truth can be proclaimed and where we won't mess with it just because it might challenge your assumptions or make you second guess the way of life that you've been living or your long-standing beliefs or might press on idols. No, if this is God's word, even if you've never thought about it along those lines, you want it to be delivered pure. You want an open proclamation of the truth. And friends, that's, that's what we're aiming to do. So in explaining the Christian ministry, Paul says we, we have gospel convictions that we're holding to. We don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Why? Because we've been mercied. We've, we've been, we have a calling. We have a gospel calling that he's called us to. We also don't lose heart because we have gospel convictions. It'd be easy to just bail by, by, by taking the easy path and the broad way. We're not going to do that. We're going to stick to these gospel convictions. Those of you who are members of Delray Baptist Church, knowing that this is our aim, hold us to it. That's part of the reason that, that just looking specifically at, at the professional ministry aspect for, uh, for a second, this is what pastors and preachers are to be doing. So we invite, we, we always say to our congregation, we want you to know what your elders' job description is so that you can hold us accountable for it. So that you can pray that we would have success in it. So you can pray that we would be faithful in it. And at any point where we're not faithful in that, to, to bring that to our attention and have conversations together about that. So hold us accountable to that Delray Baptist Church and help us achieve it. Join us in the desire to not tweak God's word and not to do weird things with it, but to give open proclamation of the truth to those in your spheres of influence, in your neighborhoods and workplaces. And then look for it when you move elsewhere. This is a very transient church. Very transient area, we're not the only, all the churches are transient around here. A lot of people in and out. And so friends, I was going to say when you move, before you move, make sure there's going to be a church who's going to do this. I don't care if it looks like this or has the same order of service as us, or, but it's not what I'm talking about. But a church who's going to open God's word and expose it to you and, and have an open proclamation of the truth whether, rather than those who are going to tamper with God's word and just tell you what you want to hear. That's not, that's not meat. That's not substance. That's sugary sweet. It tastes good for a second. It will lead to spiritual death in your life. Look for that before you move, and then when you move, find a place where you plop yourself down and you keep getting fed on the word of God. Number three. So gospel calling, gospel convictions. Number three is gospel rejection. Gospel rejection. It's a meditation he's going to have here 
on gospel rejection. Pick it up, uh, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in the remaining verses here uh, that we have, so verses 3 all the way down through verse 6, Paul is going to consider what happens once this message goes forth. So he's already talked uh, about, about what uh, their the resolve is. You might say there's resolve and then results. All right, so those first two points are the resolve. This is what we're committed to. We're going to stand firm because we've been mercied, right? And, and, and we are going to give the pure word an open proclamation of the truth, right? That's, that's their resolve. And then he's going to say, okay, well, what about the results then? What about happens once? How do, you, how do you explain what happens next? Because that can be something that leads people to bail in ministry as well. That can be something that leads us to lose heart in ministry as well. Just considering the results and how God does what he does. That's the remaining meditation that he has for us. So he first deals with the results of rejection. Right, Paul, if this ministry is so great, if this ministry is so life-giving, if this ministry, this new covenant ministry is so wonderful, how do you explain people who are rejecting it? How do you explain people who don't want anything to do with it then, Paul? He explains in verse 3, that it's because a veil lies over the minds of those who are perishing. His point, in the broader context of this letter and his relationship with the Corinthians, his point is that when there is rejection of the gospel, it doesn't reflect on the legitimacy of the message, nor on the legitimacy of the messenger, but rather on the state of the person who is rejecting both. I think that's his argument here. And so verse 4, that veil has to do with the activity, he says, of the God of this world. That is a reference to Satan. Paul is, is of course, using figurative language here since Satan is not a God. Satan is not divine. He was a created being. But Paul is using language uh, here when he says the, the God of this world. He's using language that points to the fact that this world is, is currently Satan's domain. It's Satan's sphere of influence. He has dominion on this earth until he will be eradicated finally at the return of Christ. And so in Ephesians 2, Paul refers to Satan and calls him the prince of the power of the air. Right? Uh, also in John chapter 16, verse 11, Jesus refers to Satan. He calls him the ruler of this world. Not as someone who has ultimate authority. Certainly that is God alone in his sovereignty. Not as an actual God, but as a created being who, for a time, has this earth as a place of activity and dominion. So, those who are perishing, Paul says, have been blinded by Satan. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want you to know that you have an enemy. We all do, Christians and non Christians alike. So whether you believe in the supernatural or not doesn't change the truthfulness of it or the reality of it. We don't just wrestle with flesh and blood. We don't just deal with, with physical conflicts around us with the, uh, what we can see and taste and touch. There is a supernatural spiritual world that exists and there are evil forces seeking our destruction. And so that's what he's talking about here that Satan has blinded the minds 
of unbelievers. And so as you hear that, you might say, all right, what, what do I do with that information, right? Okay, I, I see that. What, what do you want me to do about that? Well, listen, if there's a door that the thief doesn't want you to open, rest assured that's where the treasure is. If there's a door that the thief doesn't want you to open, that's where the treasure is. So just realize that God's word right here is saying to you that Satan has blinded your eyes from seeing something. What is it? That's where the treasure is. That's where the, and we need to fight to get into that room and see what that is. If Satan wants to keep you from seeing something, that's where life and freedom and hope and salvation reside. Because Satan wants to steal and kill and destroy. So if he's trying to blind you from something, friends, that's what we need to get around that and see what is it that he's trying to keep me from. I had a seminary professor in, uh, in seminary. And he, uh, good place to have a seminary professor, I guess. And he uh, was formerly a professor in uh, a part of Brazil that was uh, very animistic and uh, spiritist uh, religions. And he had a seminary student who had come out of that world uh, from the spiritist world and had become a believer and now was a student in seminary. And, and this student told him that when he was still in his kind of spiritist discipleship kind of thing that he was uh, going through uh, there in that part of Brazil, that his, he had a kind of a, an overseer, like a, a mentor, I think it was like a priest or something who was, who was kind of training him in all the ways of, of doing what, what they did. Um, and one thing that he said to him, he said, leave the Christians alone. We don't have any power over them. And the guy was like, if we don't have any power over them, shouldn't I go do that then? If, there, if there's something you're telling me, I don't have any power over these people, shouldn't, shouldn't I go then and, and, and see what that's all about? So this guy came to faith by investigating Christianity because that was the very thing his spiritist priest was telling him not to investigate. Non-Christian friends, there's a door the thief doesn't want you to open. That's where the treasure is. He's keeping you from seeing the light, it says right here in your text, is seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Find out why. Find out why he would want to keep you from that. And Christians, we must likewise know that Satan would desire to distract all of us from the very same truth. Right? Because that's not just what saves us, it's what keeps us as well. The light of, of, the, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, that's what has saved all of us. But that same light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, that's how we live. We're not just justified, we're sanctified by gospel truth. And so you better believe that Satan would also seek to blind our minds from this reality as well. And so from you... Delray members or others who are followers of Christ here, take note. Look at verse 4. Take note that it says that Satan has blinded minds. I want to think about that together for just a second, that he has blinded minds. Just know that there are a number of places where he may shoot his fiery darts, but primarily among them is your mind. That's his arena of assault. He wants to get your mind on anything but Jesus, on anything but the pure proclamation of the truth that we have in God's word. I know we can vacillate back and forth or, or, or go uh, between thinking that Christianity is a, a religion of the mind versus a religion of 
of the heart and, and oh, you can get too kind of overly intellectual and be in your ivory tower and just focusing on doctrine and to where your heart gets cold towards prayer and praise and, 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 and things like that. Or you can kind of swing all the way over here and kind of do the opposite to where you downplay the, the, the role of the mind and the life of the mind. One of the things I've been blessed by reading Puritan authors, and Jonathan Edwards especially talked about this a lot, is that the way uh, Christian theology goes through the mind to the will and the affections. Right? So you, we always start with the mind. It doesn't end there. It can't end there. It's got to work itself out in doxology and praise and, and, and our emotions and our feelings. And, but, but it starts in the mind. From there, then, from proper right knowledge, then we know how to act, the will. Then we know what to love, the affections. We know what motivates us, the affections. Right? You, you, you can't just have the, the, the will and the affections without going through right knowledge first. Right knowledge is what is going to lead to right practice and to right loves. I think that's why Satan targets our minds. Again, we don't leave it there in that ivory tower, overly intellectual, we, we, we don't feel anything, but we start there. I think that's why God has spoken to us and gives us the truth that we feast on it and learn and grow and that starts to shape what we love and how we live. So he'll want to go after your mind. Again, Paul is here talking about unbelievers, but we must all be aware of how he may attack our minds. Might be a good reflection for you even to think, how is Satan currently attacking me just in my mind and how I think my thought life, where my mind is? Would you be blinded in your suffering? Those who are suffering can fall prey to prosperity gospels. Satan attacks our minds in those moments that will promise them relief at almost any cost. So we start to veer into false gospels because of our suffering. And Satan says, then if God really loved you, he wouldn't have you suffering so much. You would have all the money you need and you'd have all the health that you need. And so you're, you're suffering and he wants to whisper and get you to believe that God is holding out on you. Or that you just don't have enough faith or otherwise you'd have all the riches and health that you should have. Or in your suffering, taking on such an intense victim mentality that you can't even see clearly to receive the truth. Would you be blinded by work or achievement? Sure, God promised me, promises me riches to come, but what really needs to dominate my time is building my own kingdom here and now. Not trusting him for what he'll provide, but by doing everything I can and overworking and making an idol of my occupation and, and spending all of my time there inordinately so that I build my own kingdom and have my own security. Or would he whisper to you that you've worked so hard and you've endured the pressures in your industry so long that you deserve to blow off a little steam. You deserve to indulge in that secret sin. See how Satan comes at our minds? Would you be blinded by unmet expectations in your life so to where you think God, you, Satan starts to whisper that, hey, God, God doesn't really love you. Why is he holding out on you if he loves you? He wants to get your mind off of Jesus and onto your expectations that haven't been met. So you stop trusting him and you stop looking to him. You stop turning to him. Would you be blinded by political idolatry? 
here in Washington, D.C. Not political involvement, which is a, a good thing. Political idolatry, political blindness comes through cultivating lust for power and oftentimes out of fear of losing control or being hurt. It comes through seeing earthly countries as our ultimate citizenship and just completely forgetting that this earth is not our home. The United States is not our home. Whatever your home country is not your home, but that we look forward to another kingdom and a greater city. To where Satan wants to get your mind off of that and onto this. It's a way he'll blind you. Would you be blinded by the past in your own life? I've, I've messed up too badly. You're blinded by your own perceived unworthiness that you ignore the beautiful things that God says about you. Made in his image. Loved enough to send his son to die for. Cherished and pursued by him. Would you be blinded by the present? Taken up with watching the news and there's constantly breaking news and constantly things flying at you left and right. And you just got to be tethered there just out of fear for the present. Would you be blinded by the future, not the eternal future, which is a good place to put our minds, but the temporal future and what's going to happen next week and next month and then the seasons to come to where your mind gets off of Jesus and onto our own circumstances? Would you be blinded by peer influence or social media, constantly feeling the need to impress your friends or not to be seen as strange or weird in their eyes? Constantly being called to keep up with trends and style and fleeting moments of excitement or humor online. Satan's happy to keep your mind there and off of Jesus. That's what all of these things would do. Have us keep our minds, blind our minds to the things of Christ and put them on other things. So friends, beware. Maybe this week of prayer and fasting, this would be a good time to reflect on, on, on these kinds of things and and where, where, just reflect on where Satan might be trying to distract your mind. Maybe it, it might even, you might find it is even just in prayer and taking time and marking it off to pray all the distractions that are going to come. How would he seek to get your mind on anything other than Jesus? Our understanding the nature of our gospel ministry helps us endure in gospel ministry. We've got to understand several things. We understand gospel calling. We understand gospel convictions. We understand gospel rejection, why people reject the gospel being blinded by Satan. And then finally, gospel reception. Gospel reception. Look at verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. But what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So there's another result that he wants to consider is not just the result of rejection, but the result of reception, right? Some hearts are hardened toward the gospel. Others have had light break through. Perhaps my, my favorite hymn that we sing, my favorite hymn of the church is the one that we're actually going to sing just in a few moments right after this sermon. But and can it be? Uh, the title for today's sermon comes from a line in that song. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is what leads to gospel reception. Our role is to do what Paul does in verse 5. We proclaim, we proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We're just his servants. Right? We proclaim him, 
We're not here to pump ourselves up, but to highlight Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord. Not Jesus as a good guy. Not Jesus as a loving mentor. Not Jesus as a religious teacher. Not Jesus as a moral exemplar. Not Jesus as a guy to keep bailing you out of trouble when you get into it. But Jesus as Lord. Jesus as King. Jesus as good and gracious and compassionate and faithful ruler. We don't just believe, but we follow. We're not just saved by him, but we submit to him. We cling to him, we cherish him. This is our message. Because of this, because of this reality, the, the, the wonderful work of Jesus that is good news to us, that he would die in our place for our sins, taking our punishment on himself, so that we, we, he would do for us what he didn't deserve, to give us what we don't deserve. That all of our sin would be put on him so that all of our, his righteousness would be put on us if we would just trust him and believe in him. That is good news. And because of that, we point to him and we say, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And when that has happened, when we make that proclamation, when we make that open statement of the truth, when we don't tamper with God's word, but we proclaim this, when we don't shrink back in gospel ministry, we believe we've been given mercy and we want to show mercy to other people. When that happens, there is the opportunity for new life, for new birth in any and every one of us. Paul alludes there to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, when he speaks of uh, in Genesis 1, where God, is, God speaks and there's light. And so he alludes to that. We read it earlier in our service together. So in verse 6, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts. So just in the same way that God in creation spoke and the light broke through, he says he does the same thing with us. He, he, he spoke and created out of nothing in Genesis 1, and he also shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ and once again brings new life for us as well. His work in saving people, and Paul is highlighting here, his work in saving people is a kind of a new creation type of act. It's a miraculous act. Which is why in the very next chapter, in 2 Corinthians 5, he's going to say, anyone who is in, new, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. How he's going to talk about our salvation, a new creation, a born again, regenerated nature. So friends, just know this is what God does. God shines that light in the same way he can speak nothing out of the darkness, speak light into the darkness. He can do that. He does that all the time in our hearts. He does that in the lives of everybody who's been saved and everybody who will be saved. So just know nobody is too sinful. Nobody's coming from a place too dark. Nobody's messed up too bad. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's been so obstinate against him that he would say, I don't even want anything to do with you anymore in that sense. Fully and finally, there's opportunity until we die to repent and turn to him. None too dirty or defiled. None too oppositional. Listen, he's not in the business of taking sinners and telling them how to get their act right or telling them to try a little bit harder or tell them to be a little bit more moral. No, he is in the business of making new creations. That's why Paul in Ephesians says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together in Christ. Friends, this is the good news that saves us. It's also the good news that in our, uh, uh, in our ministry, it's God who does the heavy lifting. 
Right? He does the work because it is impossible work otherwise. So we don't lose heart because of that. We don't lose heart because God is in the business of shining light into dark places. God is in the business of speaking new life into existence. God is in the business of doing that, of shining that, of showing us Jesus. We lay blinded by the God of this world in darkness, but God speaks into that darkness and shines the light of the knowledge of his glory in our hearts by showing us Jesus. Jesus, who is the light of the world, he shows us the knowledge of the glory of God as we gaze at Christ. And so that's my parting encouragement for all of us this morning is just that gaze at Jesus. Gaze at Jesus. Read about him in his word. Read the gospel accounts that tell of his life just to sit and look at him and see his love and his compassion and his pursuit. See that in the gospels. Read the letters of the epistles that we have in the New Testament to see people like Paul just sitting in wonder and explaining his work and what it looks like to live and follow him. Read the Old Testament that is a book that constantly calls us to look for a Savior and to long for a Savior and to wait for his appearing. Read the book of Revelation that shows him in all of his glory and calls us to say, come soon, Lord Jesus, and long for his return. Gaze at Jesus. Read about him. It's one of the ways we just look at him and, and, and feast on the truth that he brings to us. Talk to him in prayer this week. Spend time in praying to our triune God in relationship that he calls you to, that he desires to hear from us. All of our fears, all of our frustrations, the things that we're angry about, the things that we're frustrated about, things that we're excited about, the things that we're joyful. He wants all of those things for us to have that relationship. So do that honestly before him this week. Read about him. Talk to him. Think about him and reflect on him. Interpreting things in your own life, your joys, your sorrows, your pains, your griefs, your celebrations, your hopes. Think, how does me being a Christian and having Christ die for me, me trust him and him fill me with his spirit, how does that transform the way that I approach this situation? Whether the, the height of joy or the depth of anguish. How does the gospel ground me in Christ? How does Jesus give me medicine in this part of my life right now? Or how does he come beside me to ground me in my jubilation? How does he do that? Think about that. Mold that over. Talk about that with other people. And then talk to others on his behalf as well, telling of his glory. Doing these things, friends, helps us to endure in ministry, also just in the Christian life in general. Because understanding the nature of gospel ministry is what helps us to endure and gospel ministry. Let's pray for his help. God, we do thank you for the, the mercy that you have shown us. Things that, something that we don't deserve, that we didn't earn. But your action to show us unmerited favor. For pursuing us in Christ. Sending him to die in our place, God. We, we praise you for knowing how to save and that desire to save. You're being a good God and a loving God. So would you help us? Would you help us to not lose heart? There's so many things around us that, that, that would cause us fear and anxiety and worry and doubt. God, would you ground us just understanding the nature of what it is that you've called us to. Help us to not lose heart and to endure. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I invite you to